You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Good day, everyone. Rick Cole here with this week's episode of the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast, brought to you by Newspapers.com, the world's largest online archive of historical newspapers, and by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Colborne, Ontario. In this week's show, we have news and notes from the period between November 9th and November 22nd of the 1969 hockey season. And boy, it was a busy time. Lots going on in the hockey world uh, right through this time period. Some of the stuff we'll be talking about this week was the return of Bobby Hull to the Chicago Blackhawks after that contract dispute. Bobby returning to the hockey club had in hand, more or less. We'll have a letter from an NHL coach's wife to a local newspaper just showing how she supports her husband, and the newspaper's response was pretty interesting. We'll have more on the Buffalo-Vancouver expansion details, lots of news there. Uh, We'll have notes from the last couple of weeks, lots of player movement, other things going on. And maybe the biggest story for this week, at least at the first part, was the Ballard and Smythe saga at Maple Leaf Gardens. Harold Ballard and Stafford Smythe, if you remember, were removed from their positions during the summer. Well, they're back, and that shaped the fortune of the storied Maple Leaf franchise for decades to come. We've got lots more, so let's get to it. Now, for me, growing up in a small Ontario village... On the shores of Lake Erie, winter Saturdays were spent either playing hockey on the bay of the lake, right where we lived, or on a local pond with a dozen or so kids who are friends in the neighborhood. We played out there all day, freezing our toes, wiping running noses, wiping snow off our toques, whatever, but we played and played and played. And every Saturday night, usually after a hearty meal whipped up, by the world's greatest cook, my mom, and a hot bath, I'd settle in front of the television with my dad and the rest of the family, and we'd watch the Maple Leafs play whoever it was was in Toronto that night. It was wonderful. I think the most comforting thing I heard in my life back in those days was the Hockey Night in Canada theme song and Bill Hewitt welcoming us to the game, which was always well in progress thanks to somebody's archaic broadcast rules that wouldn't let them carry the game from the opening face-off. Living where we were, we were just far enough away from Toronto that the CB station came through with a snowy picture at best. Some nights it wasn't clear enough to see the puck on the player's sticks. So Bill Hewitt, or before him his dad Foster, was really the only thing that enabled us to know exactly what was going on. You couldn't see that puck often with the poor reception we had. For me at least though, 
A lot of that changed on November 8, 1969. It was that Saturday evening for the first time, at least in my lifetime, the Maple Leafs played in Montreal at the Forum against the hated Canadians. And on the microphone describing the game to us was Danny Gallivan. And that was not a bad thing. It was different, but it was Danny Gallivan. You see, Danny's voice in Ontario was to us almost magical. It evoked emotions uh, stirred deep inside. He represented to us playoff hockey. We only heard Danny's voice in April or sometimes in the May as the season got longer after expansion. Even today, when I hear sound clips of Danny Gallivan and Dick Irvin, I get chills and old emotions from my childhood are evoked. So when the game came on the screen on November 8th, 1969, and we knew the game was in Montreal, it was no surprise. It was nonetheless a strange experience for a cool autumn evening, but a rare treat to hear Danny Gallivan call the play-by-play in a regular season game. The weight of the playoffs wasn't in Danny's voice, but he made it sound exciting. Now, the game itself was a rather pedestrian affair as far as I was concerned. Both Montreal and Toronto were going to miss the playoffs that season, and the 6-3 score with the Habs on the winning end was indicative of the play. But getting to listen to Danny Gallivan made the experience something I'd always, for some reason, remember. Uh, It was interesting because Danny described the play, and during the play-by-play even said, what an exciting game it was. Where if you watched it without the sound, I don't know whether you would get the same, the same impression. Anyway, I always remembered that uh, game. And recently, I came across uh, some sound clips of the game. And I'm going to present them for you right here. This is from November 8th, 1969. Leafs and Canadians, Danny Gallivan, Dick Irvin, and even Ted Darling as the intermission host on Hockey Night in Canada. Go on, go 
Now, there was nothing better at that time than listening to Danny Gallivan describe the play. We can't bring you the whole game, of course, here. But what I would like to have you listen to is a goal scored by Jacques Lemaire and then a series of great saves by the Maple Leaf goalie, rookie, 34-year-old Marv Edwards. Those were a few of the highlights from that Montreal-Toronto game, November 8, 1969, and we thank Hockey Night in Canada for providing us with such a great production. Among the biggest of the stories of the early 1969-70 hockey season was the prolonged absence of superstar Bobby Hull from the Chicago Blackhawks. Hull wanted his contract renegotiated. He had three years left on a four-year deal, and the Blackhawks, fearing setting a dangerous precedent, steadfastly refused. Hull informed the team along the way that he had retired, and of course that was just a ploy to avoid a lengthy suspension and the uh, usual fines that accompany it. On November 11th, reports began to emerge that Hull and the Hawks were on the verge of a deal that would see him return to the hockey team. Here's what hockey reporter Ted DeMata of the Chicago Tribune reported. Robert Marvin Hull will join the Blackhawks tomorrow morning, November 12th. He will work out with the team on Chicago Stadium ice. His uniform and equipment are in his clubhouse locker. Now, whether the tug awards between the most exciting hockey player in the game and management is at an end, or whether it's simply a moratorium is not known. But Hull and management were very close to total agreement yesterday afternoon, which would have been November 10th. Hull has been working out and, and skating and shooting pucks for more than a week in Northbrook, Elmhurst, and Oak Park, Illinois rinks. He was slamming pucks at Walter Gunzo Humanek well past midnight at the Oak Park Commons. That was on November 11th. Now, Gunzo, as he's known, is a former Chicago assistant trainer, and he's now the proprietor of the largest hockey equipment establishment in the Chicago area. He took time out from his duties in his Berwyn store to help Bobby get himself back in shape. Here's what Gunzo had to say. I haven't caught one of his blazers in more than eight years. My hand is raw. He's whipping them as good as ever. Gunzo, you know, was uh, the Blackhawks practice goalie while he was a trainer, as many trainers did in the 1960s. Asked whether Hull has found his skating legs yet, Gunzo replied, Remember that little hop we always look for at the start of a game? When he had it, we knew he was in for a big night. Well, he's got it. However, that optimism didn't last very long, about 24 hours to be exact. 
Dick Beddoes of the Toronto Globe and Mail the very next day reported on a statement released by Chicago General Manager Tommy Ivan, a very less than optimistic statement. Hull refused comment on the release issued by uh, Ivan, which began like this. Bobby is by no means the official spokesman for the Hawks or any of their players. When and if he returns to the ice, he will be playing under terms of a four-year contract he signed last year. Hall has never disputed the validity of the pact, but he claims that the uh, Hawks did not comply with a subsidiary agreement deferring his hockey income over 15 or 20 years. Ivan said, when agreement is reached, Coach Billy Ray and I will decide when he's fit enough to join the team. From what we've seen of his skating so far, it'll not be this weekend. Now, Hull's reaction was laconic. If Ivan or Ray must have been watching me, it had to have been from behind pillars at midnight. Ivan's release went on to say, Bobby and everybody else are required under new club policies to subordinate outside activities and give hockey their full efforts. We have also set down strict clubhouse procedures which will not be changed for any individual at any time. We saw what happened to other sports teams when they allowed outside activities to take precedence over the game itself. This, of course, is in reaction to that story of Pitt Martin making the statement about many players and superstars not caring about what happened on the Chicago club. Now, Ivan went on to say, we are proud of the wonderful job each individual has done this year, and we will make every effort to be in the playoffs with or without Bobby Hull. Ivan also said, we do not detract from Bob's great ability as a hockey player or discount some of his spectacular efforts on the past or his contributions to this club. However, the Hawks are dedicated to bringing a championship to Chicago fans and Bobby will have to support our new policies. And then, as this all was going on, there was this bizarre item out of Dayton, Ohio, where the International Hockey League, Dayton Gems, made an offer to the Blackhawks to allow Hull to work himself in shape with the minor league club in the International Hockey League. It took uh, Tommy Ivan about 10 seconds to thank the Dayton club for their offer, but under no circumstances would that be allowed. Finally, on November 13th, which was a big hockey news day for other reasons, Hull and the Blackhawks held a joint press conference announcing an agreement had finally been reached. A contrite Bobby Hull coming back to the Hawks seemingly with hat in hand issued this statement. After careful consideration, I have abandoned my desire to retire from organized hockey and I wish to rejoin the Chicago Blackhawks team as a player in good standing. My request to return to play has been granted subject to my playing condition being approved by the club general manager and coach. I still have a four-year player contract with the Blackhawks which has three years left to run. There has never been any dispute between the club and me as my players as to my players contract differences arose 
between my advisors and the club on matters, which I now realize are entirely unrelated to my function as a hockey player, and I have now abandoned any position I have taken in the past on this subject. I regret having made certain statements which were printed out of context and offer my apologies to William W. Wirtz, Tommy Ivan, and Billy Ray. My wish is that the whole episode will soon be forgotten and I pledge my utmost efforts to helping our club to a playoff berth and winning the Stanley Cup for Chicago. My desire is to return to the Blackhawks as a player as soon as possible so that I might make my contribution to a winning cause for Chicago, its fans, and my teammates. Hull finally got into good enough shape to suit up for the Blackhawks in a November 19th game against the New York Rangers. The game ended in a 1-1 tie, but Hull looked still badly out of shape. He was not a factor in the game. Now, whatever you think of Bobby Hull, and there are many opinions and good reasons for disdain of hockey's one-time golden boy, it was big news in 1969, and news of the day that we just can't ignore, so we report it. Bobby was, and always will remain, a lightning rod of controversy for the National Hockey League and its fans. Now, this next story is one that uh, we don't like to hear of, we don't like to report, but unfortunately, as we head into the 1970s, it's something that took place far too often. Toronto Marlboro's defenseman, Steve Durvano, faced possible charges following an incident involving several Marlboro players, team coach Gus Bardner, and police during an uh, Ontario Hockey Association game in St. Catharines. The incident occurred in the third period of a game in which St. Catharines whipped the Marlies 5-1. Now, Durbano, whom many of us would get to know in the future as a bit of a haywire type of guy, was 17 at the time. He was penalized for high sticking at 548 of the third period of the game with the issue no longer in doubt. While in the penalty box, he got into an argument with the timekeepers and several fans sitting behind the box. And if you're ever in the old Jack Gate Cliff Arena in St. Catharines, you know that the access there was pretty close. Referee Walt Gardner of Simcoe, Ontario, gave Durbano a 10-minute misconduct for verbal, verbal abuse of game officials, and then he tacked on a game misconduct after conferring with the officials at the penalty box. That got him thrown out of the game. Durbano was on his way down the corridor beside the team bench to the dressing room when he became embroiled in a scuffle with a police officer. Several of them, in fact. Bodner and several Marley players then joined in the fracas. The timekeepers here needled the players all the time, Durbano said. When I got my penalty for high sticking, Steve Shutt, who's a winger for the Marlies, was already in the penalty box. Now, I figured he wasn't being let out soon enough, and I just asked the penalty timekeeper about it, and the fans started yelling at me. I shouted something at them, and the linesman thought I was yelling at him. So he talked to the referee, who gave me the misconduct. Then the timekeeper leaned over the boards, and he said something to him as well, and the ref added a game misconduct. 
Now, I was on my way to the dressing room when one of the policemen in the corridor grabbed me for his own reason. I shoved his hand away because I didn't think he had the right to touch me when I was going to the room. In a second, the players were milling around and there was a lot of pushing and shouting. Cooler heads finally prevailed and order was restored and Durbano was taken to the St. Catharines Police Station and released to accompany the team back to Toronto. The uh, St. Catharines Police Department said it would be a few days whether they decide if their charges were going to be laid, but it was reported that a, a charge of assaulting a police officer would probably be issued against Durbano. Now, Coach Bodner, who tried to get Durbano into the dressing room, was knocked down in the scuffle, and uh, he received some minor injuries as well. The police officer received a cut and was treated at the St. Catharines General Hospital. If you're a fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs, then this next story, which was the biggest news in November, according to a lot of people, signals your Pearl Harbor Day. On November 13th, Stafford Smythe and Harold Ballard, the deposed president and vice president of Maple Leaf Gardens as of last June 27th, scored a comeback. They returned to their positions of president and executive vice president, respectively, of the Toronto Maple Leaf Hockey Club. There's been no change in their status with the parent company, Maple Leaf Gardens Limited, of which they remain as directors on the board. George Mara, who was elevated to the presidency when Smythe and Ballard were deposed, retains his office. And John Bassett, who reportedly cast a deciding vote against Smythe and Ballard at the June meeting, remains the chairman of the board of directors. Now, a lot of hockey fans over the years that I've talked to have always wondered how the heck this thing could ever take place where these two guys facing charges for income tax evasion from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police of all uh, organizations could possibly have wingled their way back into the executive suite at Maple Leaf Gardens. Dan Proudfoot of the Toronto Globe and Mail was one of the first to uh, report it, and he went right to the source, or at least one side of the story's source, Stafford Smythe himself. Uh, he reported on November 14th that the Maple Leaf Gardens annual statement lists Smythe as the president of Maple Leaf Hockey Club and Harold Ballard as executive vice president. Frank King Clancy was remaining as the vice president of hockey operations. According to Proudfoot, Smythe would be in charge of the Leafs while all other attractions held at Maple Leaf Gardens would be Harold Ballard's responsibility. Smythe told Proudfoot, what's happened is that we've all compromised a little. What we've done covers the actions that were taken in the past and at the same time will allow the building and the team to run properly. The Maple Leaf Hockey Club is now an operating subsidiary of Maple Leaf Gardens, which is a holding company. The other board, Maple Leaf Gardens Limited, is removed from the phase of operating the building or the team. In effect, management situation is the way it was before, meaning before June, when the two were booted out of their jobs. There was a lack of direction that we will be supplying. Previously, every decision was difficult 
because people didn't know what we were doing, said Smythe. For example, say some singer named Pumpernickel or something like that was available to us for a night at about $50,000. Previously, nobody would know if he was worth 50000 or if Barbara Streisand would be worth 150000 or whatever. Now it's made perfectly clear that I, or Harold in this case because it's a singer, will be the ones to go to for a decision. Interestingly, at that point, no one at Maple Leaf Gardens was aware that this had taken place. Smythe said, there's been no announcement, and there will be no announcement. It will become known when people pick up the annual statement and see Harold and myself listed in the new positions. They, the employees, had to come to us for authorization for anything anyway. Even though we didn't have any position, they knew we called the shots, interestingly. Now, George Mara, as we mentioned earlier, who replaced Smythe, will still be at the top of the garden's executive ladder, and John Bassett still stays as chairman of the board, but they won't even work in the building. Smythe-Ballard's partnership will have effective control over all Maple Leaf Gardens operations. Bassett, a former ally of Ballard and Smythe, had very little to say after the uh, announcement or non-announcement had been made. He told Proudfoot, you have Mr. Smythe's comments and I have nothing to say on the matter. Good night. And that was it. There was a rumor circulating uh, the day before that Bassett had resigned from the board of directors after Smythe and Ballard were given their new positions. Smythe denied the rumor and Bassett, when contacted, hung up the phone too quickly to confirm or deny anything. Now, Smythe had lots more to tell Dan Proudfoot. He said, there's enough wrong with this team. As it is, we're making these moves because it's necessary. I don't want to say too much because I don't want to embarrass somebody, myself or Mara or anyone else. Smythe and Ballard's new positions were ratified at a meeting of the Maple Leaf Gardens Board of Directors over two weeks before this meeting, right around November 1st. Uh, granting the executive titles had been considered since last August, about a month and a half after the two had been booted out from their positions in the first place. Now, so far this season, the Leafs have compiled a terrible record with four wins, eight losses, and two ties, and it hasn't been easy for the team or anyone connected with Maple Leaf Gardens Limited. Smythe has actually been involved with the Leaf coach John McClellan's and general manager John Gregory's decision-making all along, although I don't think many people knew that. But not so much as Smythe thinks is necessary. He believes he should be involved even more. Now, where have we had that before? Maybe in Detroit, where they fire coaches for winning? Smythe said the team has suffered from a lack of direction. Sitting on the sidelines as I have been with no title, I haven't had the enthusiasm to do the things that needed to be done. But now I will be giving some direction as we start to rebuild this team. How long will it take? Well, they used to say it took five years to rebuild a team, but that was when there were only 16. Now with expansion, who knows? Who would know? It'd be over 50 years and they're still rebuilding. Smythe said Gregory has a great record with her organization, and McClellan has a great personal record, so they won't be fired. People like these, you don't throw in the ash can. 
With the former chaos that existed here, they couldn't operate with the confidence they need. Now, they know, they report to me, and we will be working together with King Clancy to improve the team. Back in 1969, we couldn't have foreseen exactly what would happen with the Maple Leaf hockey team. And to be fair, in the next few years, under the leadership of Jim Gregory, the Maple Leaf Hockey Club actually did improve and into the 1970s looked like a contender. Of course, all that was undone with the advent of the World Hockey Association and the incompetence that was owner Harold Ballard after the death of Stafford Smythe. Now, here's the kind of story that we didn't hear every day in 1969, and we don't hear it that often even now. Andrea Kelly, the wife of Pittsburgh Penguins coach Red Kelly, wrote a letter to Al Abrams, sports editor of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Abrams, probably much to Andrea's surprise, published her letter in full and also his uh, somewhat of a rebuttal. But nonetheless, it was a rebuttal that was, well, you can listen to it. I'd call it condescending at best. Here's the letter. Dear Mr. Abrams, the only thing the Penguins need to win is some spirit behind them. They have it, lots of it, and the team will gel in a short time, but they need the fans as the other members of the team. The whole wonderful, amazing thing about sports is that magical extra little something that comes from people cheerleading and encouraging. I have been on both sides of the fence, once upon a time as a competitor and now as a fan. You may remember Andrea was quite the figure skater. And truly, when I'm in the spirit of the thing, I dare say I feel as if I contribute just as much as a screaming, encouraging, cheering fan. It's what it's all about. Look, when you continually downgrade all of your teams, it's a contagious thing. People read you and begin to feel the same way. Oh, what is the use, they say. They're going to lose because that's all they read in the papers. It certainly doesn't go with the supposedly new Pittsburgh. I'm puzzled more than upset. My husband and I came here because to him, Pittsburgh represented a challenge. He came here the past summer for discussions about his job and came back to Canada glowing about Pittsburgh pride. They are redoing their city and everyone is so alive and enthusiastic. You'll love it, he said. Well, it is an exciting uptrend city, Mr. Abrams, but let's get with it with our sports fans. Your newspaper people are the ones to influence the people. As for the Pens, they are young, exciting, ambitious, and proud, and believe that Red will try to keep them that way, but they are not illiterate. They read you too, and please don't discourage them. Hoping to see you at a hockey game someday, and oh yes, thanks for the nice things you've written about Red. Now, Abrams kind of nodded his head, almost as if to pat Andrea on the head and say, good girl. He said, it isn't often we hear from the distaff side of a sports family, and frankly, I'm a bit puzzled by the lovely Mrs. Kelly's letter. I don't know whether she is offering a suggestion or a rap on the knuckles. Either way, I want her to know it is most welcome. Her enthusiasm towards trying to encourage screaming, cheering fans is infectious. 
there's merit to what he, she has to say, and he went on to a bit of a description of the crazy New York Mets fans that were credited with getting the amazing Mets to the 1969 World Series. However, he comes back and he says, Unfortunately, not everybody goes to an athletic event just to be entertained. They like to see the home team win once in a while. I must differ with Miss Kelly on one point. When you continually downgrade all of your teams. Al didn't like that. He said, never has this department gone out of its way to downgrade any sports team. We dig them now and then by telling the true facts where the Pirates, Steelers, Pitt, Dukes, Penguins, Pipers, and others are concerned. He said, I'm sure no one, not even Mrs. Kelly, can object to the truth. Abrams went on to say, I would like to believe we influence people. We do to a certain extent, mainly like building a fire under a good product. The best way to influence anyone is make them a cheering, screaming, encouraging ticket buyer is for the front office of our sports team to give us winners and respectable competitors to write about. There's no other way unless, of course, you're a Mets fan. And as a postscript, Mrs. Kelly, thanks for the note about hoping to see me at a hockey game. I have witnessed three so far, a tie and two defeats. Abrams is saying, of course, that the only games he's been to, they haven't won. The Penguins have played nearly 80 home games in their first two years and this part of the third of their existence. And Al Abrams, sports editor of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, one of the biggest newspapers not only in Pittsburgh but in the entire United States, has been to three games. And he claims to know what's going on with his hockey team. You can't blame Mrs. Kelly and other hockey fans for the lack of knowledge that journalists are supposed to provide for a sporting event like hockey. Get with the program, Al Abrams, and learn what's going on in your city and in your rinks. Get out to more than three out of 80 home games. Now, in our podcast, we talked about Charlie Barton, the intrepid hockey reporter for the Buffalo Courier Express. On November 15th, Charlie had another scoop. At that time, he wrote a story that said that Buffalo and Vancouver would be granted franchises in the National Hockey League shortly after the December 1st deadline for filing applications for franchises. A highly placed National Hockey League source told Barton that the Buffalo group, headed by Seymour H. Knox III and his brother Northrup, had met every condition laid down by the league. Barton went on to say that Vancouver interests are close to meeting all the conditions as well. The source was quoted as saying, There isn't any doubt in the minds of most knowledgeable hockey people that the Knox brothers will be awarded a franchise for Buffalo and that Metacore Corporation of Minneapolis will obtain one for the city of Vancouver. It's been evident for some time that Buffalo and Vancouver were the leading cities after Baltimore and Cleveland withdrew because the $6 million price tag for a franchise was too rich for them. The Knox brothers headed the Buffalo group, which was unsuccessful when the NHL expanded from 6 to 12 teams in 1967. 
The second expansion phase will embrace just two new clubs. Robert O. Suarez, attorney for the Knox Group, hasn't denied the syndicate was continuing its uh, efforts to bring an NHL team to Buffalo. And he's neither confirmed nor denied early reports that the $6 million tag wouldn't phase the Knox brothers. The Courier Express said it also has learned that Swados has been acting to complete all necessary arrangements to obtain a major league franchise hockey club for the city for the 1970-71 season. Earlier in that week, Bob McNulty, an official of the Minnesota North Stars, visited Buffalo to examine Memorial Auditorium and to advise the Knox Group on any necessary modifications to the building that must be made to bring it up to the NHL standard. McNulty is an engineer, and his firm built the Metropolitan Sports Center in Bloomington, Minnesota, where the North Stars play their games. McNulty had kind words for the Buffalo organization. They'd made all the right moves, he said, seen the right people, and have tied up a nice, neat package. It's merely a formality until they're in the league with us. Now here are this week's news and notes, and first up, we have a story that came out of Minneapolis that uh, General Manager Ren Blair confirmed he had been talking to Bernie Boom Boom Jeffreyon about a possible coaching job with his team, the Minnesota North Stars. Bernie, you remember, left the New York Rangers a while ago while coaching the team with health problems. Joe Trimble, in the New York Daily News on November 12th, wrote a story that was published saying that Boom Boom Jeffreyon would become the coach of the North Stars within the next 48 hours. Well, that wasn't quite the case. Sid Hartman of the Minneapolis Tribune actually caught up with Jeffreyon, and here's what the boomer had to say. He said, I talked to Blair on the phone a couple times, and up until this time, we hadn't discussed terms or contract, and he hadn't offered me the job. But my health is 100%. I had three quarters of my stomach removed last December, and I had ulcers even when I was playing and before I started to coach. If everything could be worked out with Mr. Blair, terms, contract, etc., I'd be ready to coach the North Stars tomorrow. I'd planned to be originally in Minneapolis to look at the Philadelphia North Stars for the Rangers, and so I just happened to be here to talk to Ren. I'd be a liar if I said I'd talk terms with Mr. Blair because we haven't yet. We just moved into a new house in New York, and that took nine months to build things up, but now I don't think this would stop me from moving here. I know about three-quarters of the North Stars players, and I feel they have one hell of a hockey team. I played against them the first year of expansion. I picked them for first place in the new division the first two years. I got a lot of respect for them. I like coaching hockey. Hockey's been my life. So on that conversation, we would kind of believe that maybe uh, Bernie is leaning towards coaching the Stars. Even Dan Stoneking, the highly respected Minneapolis Star staff writer, wrote a story that said that Jeffrey Ahn was expected to accept the hockey coaching officer that Ren Blair had made to him. However, on November 14th, Jeffrey Ahn informed Ren Blair that he would have to decline the offer to coach the North Stars. The reason he gave is that he did not have the desire to return to coaching. Blair was nonplussed with the whole affair. Bernie's decision did not come as a shock to me. I can understand why he feels that way, and I can't blame him for it. 
If a man does not have the total desire to coach, then it's not fair for him to take the job. I was aware from the beginning of our negotiations of his reluctance to accept our offer. He indicated to me that he was not too keen about getting back into harness, and I felt his chances of taking it were slim. Now, that brings into question the story that Sid Hartman published, and you wonder where those quotes came from, because obviously, Jeffrey on and Blair have one story, and Sid Hartman, the respected columnist for the Tribune, has another. In any event, that ended the saga of Bernie Jeffreyon coaching the North Stars. Now, we have some other news of the week as well. The St. Louis Blues have talked goalie Glenn Hall into coming out of retirement and back to playing for the team. Glenn quit the team after last year's playoffs, citing it was just time to hang him up after a long career. The 38-year-old veteran will be starting his 15th NHL season when he rejoins the clubs sometime early in December after signing a two-year contract. One of the stories going around is that he will be paid around the $40,000 he made last year and he won't have to play any more than 15 games. Another comeback was announced as well. George Armstrong was doing it again. He ended his third National Hockey League retirement and was returning to the Maple Leafs as soon as he could get himself in shape. Armstrong will probably be used for penalty killing and on the right wing as that's where the Leafs are very, very uh, weak at this time. Now, a lot of people, when they talked to Army about his uh, decision to come back, wondered if he would reassume the captaincy, which had recently been awarded to Davy Keon. All George would say is, the C is on the guy who should be wearing it. Now, Gregory met Armstrong's salary demands, which were for more than $40,000. Right now, George says, it's a practice look and see situation. I practice, they look, and see when they think they're ready for me to play. They're paying me, so I'll play whenever they want. There seems to be quite a feud brewing between the St. Louis Blues and the Philadelphia Flyers. The two teams brawled many times, especially in the playoffs, in the first couple of years of the existence of the clubs, and the uh, fighting continues on even as we speak now. Now, Bud Poyle, general manager of the Flyers, has charged St. Louis Blues general manager Scotty Bowman with being responsible for the last four major brawls in the NHL. Four of the major brawls that I can remember in the last two years have involved the St. Louis Blues, Poyle said. I think it's more than just a coincidence. The Flyers general manager says he's going to ask NHL President Clarence Campbell to investigate the incidents involving the Blues and directions given by the team by its coach and general manager Bowman. Two of the four incidents that Poyle is referring to involved his team, the Flyers. It's no secret that the Philadelphia club lost not only the games to the Blues, but the fights as well. In order to get tougher this year, Poyle brought in uh, noted pugilist Reggie Fleming, and he's been calling out the Plager brothers uh, a lot as well. It looks like the Flyers are going to get tougher, the Blues are going to be rain tough, and I don't know where any of this uh, brawling will be alleviated anytime soon, especially with the uh, rule changes that Clarence Campbell has made that we talked about last week. Talking about the Flyers, their captain is Ed Van Imp, and he had a horrible injury this past weekend. 
he took a shot right in the mouth and had six teeth broken off and knocked right out. He underwent oral surgery by uh, Dr. Everett Borganzi, the Flyers' oral surgeon. He's done all the work he can to repair the damage, which was extensive. And Dr. Borganzi said, I'm advising him not to play, but the decision is up to the patient. Van Imp wants to play, but uh, the word we got was that the Flyers' management told Ed he'll be sitting for a while, and they went and called up a young defenseman Terry Ball from the Quebec Aces to take Ed's place. Ed's only eating through a straw for the next few weeks. Now here's a bit of a, I guess a sad one if you want to say it. Uh, Bronco Horvath has been around hockey for just about 20 years. Actually, probably a little more than that. He was released by the Rochester Americans this week after a very distinguished professional career that included the 1959-60 season when he finished just one point behind Bobby Hull in the race for the NHL scoring championship. Uh, Horvath departed the Rochester Americans for his Port Colborne, Ontario home, trying to figure out what his next step would be. Uh, His departure wasn't entirely unexpected. He hadn't been in uniform for the Rochester's previous American League games this week, and Coach Dick Gamble, a good friend of Bronco's, said it was just time. It wasn't easy telling Bronco he was finished here. I played with him for six full seasons and parts of two others. I consider him a friend. He was my line mate for quite a bit of the time and has to be one of the all-time greats in making the pass. Horvath was unavailable for comment when he was let go, but the word is he's going to start contacting other professional teams and he hopes he can catch on with somebody else. The colorful Bronco is Rochester's all-time leader in assists with 343, third in goals with 199, and runner-up to Gamble in points with 542. Uh, In the AHL history, Horvath is 6th in assists with 484, 15th most goals in history with 263, and 10th in points with 747. He was a member of all three Calder Cup champion Rochester clubs in 65, 66, and 1968, and two of the three losing finalists in 57, in 1967. Bronco Horvath probably will retire and word is he's got a scouting job waiting for him with the Minnesota North Stars. The NHL season has been going on long enough now the teams are starting to see what they have and more importantly what they need. That means that trade rumors are starting to circulate and here's a few that have been going around in the past couple of weeks. Toronto has actually been talking trade with Montreal. General Manager Jim Gregory of the Leafs is trying to arrange a deal where he'd acquire defenseman Terry Harper from the Habs. There was no word on who would go Montreal's way. Another rumor would have Philadelphia's defenseman Joe Watson going back to the Boston Bruins where the Flyers got him from in the expansion draft. The Flyers need offensive help and it's said that Boston was offering young center Jimmy Harrison around the league and specifically to the Flyers. One other trade story going around has the Bruins offering Harrison and young winger Don Marcotte to the Los Angeles Kings for holdout defenseman Bill White. One trade that was completed 
saw Minnesota send young forward Freddie O'Donnell to the Bruins to complete the offseason trade in which the North Stars acquired Minnesota native Tommy Williams from Boston. O'Donnell is a youngster who played some junior hockey in uh, Oshawa, Ontario, and the Bruins are high on him. I wouldn't be surprised to see young Fred with the Bruins maybe even before the end of this season. Montreal left winger Dick Duff said he's recovered from his minor surgery and he'll rejoin the Canadians shortly. In other injury news, Red Wings winger Larry Jeffrey's career just might be over. Sad to say. The doctors say they've never seen an athlete fully come back from an injury like the badly broken kneecap Larry sustained in a freakish training camp injury when he banged his knee into the boards. Larry sure has had more than his share of injuries in his career and has just diminished what really should have been a fine time for him in the NHL. And our last note this week concerns Seals goalie Gary Suitcase-Smith. He's been suspended for three games by National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell. The suspension comes as a result of a shoving incident, so it's described by the Canadian press, with referee Ron Wicks in a game against the Boston Bruins in Boston on November 10th. Smith missed the uh, game against the Minnesota North Stars and would also sit out the next game against Montreal and New York Rangers in the upcoming weekend of November 13th, 14th, 15th. Wicks gave Smith a game misconduct at the time, and that comes with an automatic fine of $50. In addition, the suspension means that Smith's salary for the three games is cut off to him and must be remitted to the league office by the Oakland Seals. The incident with Wicks occurred in the third period of the Boston game when the goaltender protested a goal scored from the left point by Boston defenseman Dallas Smith. A statement said there was no basis for early reports that said Gary had struck the official with his stick. It didn't happen. Campbell said, I am satisfied that Smith did not assault the official intentionally or otherwise the suspension would have been much longer. Reports from the scene said that uh, Smith actually tried to make a connection of his elbow in Dallas Smith's head. Smith ducked and Ron Wicks got it right in the mush. And now it's time for this week's Hockey Personality of the Week. And this time around, it's the Los Angeles Kings fine goaltender, Jerry Desjardins. Jerry figures playing goal for the National Hockey League is 70% mental. It's one thing to be ready for a game physically, Jerry said. But you can get away with it against Western Division teams, but not against the East. If you went up for the game mentally, that's the night you get clobbered and let in five or six, maybe even seven goals. Jerry is the only goalie in the NHL up to this point in time, November 22nd, to have played every single game for his team. Jerry explains, Wayne Rutledge hasn't had much luck. He got hurt last year when he tore some muscles in the lower part of his stomach and in the groin. He only played 14 or 15 games. Now he nursed it all summer, but he got hurt again in training camp and discovered he had a large calcium deposit in his right leg. So they had to operate and they had to take that out of there. He's been practicing the last two or three weeks with Springfield. 
The king's spare goalie for this time was a a young fellow by the name of Claude Hardy, who led Victoriaville to the Allen Cup uh, two years ago. The Allen Cup is the Canadian Senior Hockey League Championship. He's only got uh, professional experience in 38 games where he played with Springfield in the American Hockey League last year. So Coach Hal Laco has been a little reluctant to use Claude, and as of now, he still hasn't played in an NHL game, but he's been here for a month and a half. Now Desjardins himself has had his share of good breaks and bad breaks. As a 15-year-old back in 1960, he played goal for a midget team in Sudbury sponsored by the Lions Club, who sponsored so many minor league teams all over Ontario. Now that club was eliminated from the playoffs, but the young goalie for the winners was put on the sidelines when he lost a fingernail and an infection set in. Desjardins took over for the goaltender and he led the team to the All-Ontario Championships. Jerry says, I came to Toronto after that and I played the final year of the Metro Junior A League. Uh, Then the next year, the Marlies returned to the OHA and they controlled about 90% of the players in that Metro League. Now Gary Smith, who we just talked about with Oakland, he ended up winning the goaltending job with the Marlies. Jerry says, I had a chance to go to Kitchener to play in the OHA, but the Leafs chief scout, Bob Davidson, wanted me to go to London and play Junior B there. He told me Kitchener wouldn't have too good of a team, and that turned out well for me because while we just missed the All-Ontario, I was picked the all-star goalie in the league, and that got me some attention. The next year, Smith turned pro, and I played for the Marlies with Jim Gregory as our coach. After the season was over, I was surprised to find that I was a free agent. The Leafs had somehow let the rights that they held to Jerry lapse, and he was available to any team that wanted him. I figured I belonged to Toronto, but that just wasn't the case. I got a call from Montreal in August, and I turned pro with them and went to Houston of the Central Professional Hockey League. Carl Wetzel was the regular that year, and I only got into 19 games. In fact, it was 19 games in a row while he was hurt. The next year, I went back to Houston and I won the number one job, but I was injured and I had to have an operation on my right knee. While I was on the shelf, Rogie Vashon stepped in and later on he was called up to Montreal. I came back late in that year and I never did get into proper shape. The next season, I told Canadians I didn't want to go back to the Central League and they arranged to send me to Cleveland in the American Hockey League. And I had a tremendous year. I made the first All-Star team, won the Rookie of the Year award, and finished second in the MVP voting, even though the team finished in last place, and I had a bad goals against average. Los Angeles purchased me at the draft meetings that summer, giving up their first amateur draft choices in 69 and 72. I was really happy, but even so, I never thought I'd make it at the training camp. They had Rutledge, who had come close to winning the Rookie Award the previous year, and Terry Sawchuk was still there. But I worked hard, and the door opened for me when they traded Sawchuk to Detroit. I really like it at Los Angeles. I just wish we could win a little bit more. As everyone knows, the Kings are at the bottom of the Western Division in the 1969-70 season. But it's not been the fault of Jerry Desjardins. Now, Jerry went on to have a fine career in the NHL, went to the WHA, and came back and played with the Buffalo Sabres, where his career was cut short thanks to an eye injury, which had him uh, severely diminished vision at the end of his career. 
Well, everyone, that's our show for this week. Lots of interesting stuff going on 50 years ago. And as we have so often found, much of it has ramifications in our sports today. Well, what did we learn this week? Well, we learned that Bobby Hull had to swallow his pride somewhat in order to return to the Chicago Blackhawks. We also learned that NHL clubs still have all the leverage when it comes to dealing with their players. We learned that Harold Ballard and Stafford Smythe were never really out of the picture with the Toronto Maple Leafs, although we wouldn't find out for many years just how awful their return to Toronto's upper management would be for the team. We learned that young Toronto Junior A defenseman Steve Durbano is a real loose cannon and that his behavior at this time does not bode well for his future. We all know what happened with Steve and it's a sad story uh, in the long run. We also learned that Red Kelly has a very supportive wife who is very eloquent and forthright in her support for her husband and the hockey team he coaches, the Pittsburgh Penguins. We hope you'll join us every week and follow along as we go through the 1969-70 hockey season and all its events and stories. We'll return next week with more news and features from the season. Some of the stories we're working on include the charges being laid against Ted Green and Wayne Mackey by the Ottawa Police, a look at Frank Selke Jr. and his opinion that things are rapidly improving for that terrible Oak and Seals franchise, And there's big expansion news as a formal announcement by the league is made just before the end of the month. Lots more as well. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Our introduction music comes to us courtesy of the Rural Alberta Advantage and other musical pieces are by Andy Cole as well. Our stories are compiled with files from the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail and of course the many publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at at 1969HockeyNews and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey and at our WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. When the ice